Hello, welcome back to Subspace Radio. It's me, Rob. And me, Kevin. And we're here to talk about the season finale of Strange New Worlds, Season 2, Episode 10, Hermegeny. <laughs> what is it again? <laughs> nice try. It was very close. Hermione. No, her, her Germany. I've forgotten already. Hegemony. Hegemony. That's right. Hegemony. Yes. We are talking about Hegemony, the season finale episode Hegemony. And I'm not repeating it over and over again because I have difficulty saying it. I'm saying it for your benefit, audience members. Hegemony yeah. is here. I can't wait to find out, like, just before we get into it, I'm curious of this word hegemony they've chosen for the social structure of the Gorn. Like, it's been mentioned a couple of times just in passing, like, the Gorn hegemony. Yeah. And it's this, it's this name that, uh, that I'm not fully versed in the, in the term, but it means some kind of social structure where there's, like, a, a group at the top that controls everything. And I'm interested if that's going to play out in any way or if they're just... Using the word because it sounds alien. Well, the the online description is the social, cultural, ideological, or economical influence exerted by a dominant group. There you go. Is there a Gorn hegemony? Is there a group at the top among the Gorn? Or do the Gorn see themselves as the hegemony for the wider galaxy? That's that, what, yeah. That has yet to play out. And I'm wondering if they're going there or if they've just gone, look, use the word. No one will ask any questions. <laughs> Oh, that's a very cynical view of things, Kevin. I'm sure that it's all going to come out in the wash next season. Well, yeah, because they seem to be implying there is something yet to be learned about the Gorn. They're not just monsters. If I know my Star Trek and they're pointing out, hey, they're monsters, don't think too much about them. They're just scary monsters. It probably means they're not. Exactly. Well, if we all go back to Arena, it does end with a mutual respect from both captains after they tried to beat the crap out (laughs) of each other at Vasquez Rocks. Exactly. (laughs) So yes, Mm -hmm. it is the end of season two and uh, all those little hints that were dropped earlier in the first episode, really. And um, with the previous episode where nothing could possibly go wrong, our relationship is so completely happy. We have Marie Bartel thrown straight into the path of the Gorn invading party. On this Parnassus Beta colony, which is a great name, that's a name right out of the original series, I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> as we were panning across the small village there, I was like, am I watching the right show? The soundtrack is from Star Trek, but the visuals look like an insurance ad. I don't know what's going on here. Yes, it they... Did do a wave of the hands voiceover description of sort of like, ah, uh, this colony, which is out of Federation space. So this colony is not tied to the Federation. So the Federation are there to help and support and also drum up a bit of interest in possibly siding yeah. with the Federation. But it is laid out like a pre-warp Earth, say 1950s, Yeah, they say 60s. it's a small town model or something like that. Yeah. And this... Comes back to something I've said a few times about recent episodes is that sometimes they like oversimplify things a bit. And it's not anything that Star Trek has not done for decades. But this idea, like we see one strip of shops with a playground in front of it. And they say that the colony is based on the small time model. And I'm trying to understand, does that mean that this colony is literally just this little village on this giant planet? The colony is this tiny village and it's on the small town model. Or is the entire planet now covered in small town America 
and there's like homogenization of a planet or a species or a culture into just one thing. When you look at Earth, there are many cultures and many kinds of town. The idea that we would go out and go, you know what, this colony, we like small town America so much, we're going to cover the entire planet with it, is such a strange idea. And I don't know if that's what we're being asked to accept or if the idea is that this is a really small colony, because it sounds like there's just a few thousand colonists at the end. So maybe they're just getting started with a small town. And it'll build from there. Look, I hate to pull you up on it, but it's not a hegemony; it's a gemini. You yeah, made, you, oh, you, of course, yes. <laughs> you did find it very difficult to pronounce, so glad I'm on yes. top of it there, Kevin. Thank you for the correction, If Rob. only you could see my shifty eyes, audience. Yes, I love how much detail and effort you have put into, and I wouldn't expect any less from you, your amazing mind and how it works, Kevin Yank. But yes, I love the idea you're finding the justification within the fact they said, we're on the back lot of Paramount, and this is the set we've got. So let's do a hand-waving voiceover to explain why we're using Small Town America set for this particular episode. It's a long-standing tradition in Star Trek to use the costumes, raid the costume cabinet, use the backlot set. I just felt like we were past that with the budgets of Star Trek these days. You never can tell. I've been watching a lot of docos of uh, Star Trek from Ronald J. Coleman. He's a YouTuber, and I highly recommend watching his videos. Check the link in the description right there. And he goes into enormous detail about the entire Star Trek franchise right up to the Chris Pine movies. But yes, in talking about the fact that no matter how successful the show got and how much money was put behind it, they were always looking for cutbacks and finding ways to spend as little as possible. Even at the height of its success mm. in the 80s and 90s, they were looking at ways of doing it as cheaply as possible, which is just, I mean, obviously everyone's got a business model, but they're going like... The 90s Star Trek could do no wrong. Even even after um, Final Frontier in 89, they were powering along and they're going, oh, we still got to cut the budgets a bit. Let's just use a back lot here. Let's go back to the California wilderness and that could be somewhere off where Jen Hadar base is. Yeah, exactly. I feel like we've jumped straight into the detail, but high level, Rob, I forgot to ask you, like, what did you make of this episode? Is this a worthy ending to the season for you? I, I believe so. I believe so. There's a lot of great stuff in there. Unlike the, the heavy lean into Alien the last time we saw the Gorn, this was very much a case of full seam ahead battle stations and Pike having to deal with his duty to the Federation, but also his love for Patel. I thought that the performances were amazing. We had a nice little cameo appearance that we'll no doubt talk about later on that we didn't expect. And how can we not go any further without mentioning they pulled the blinder on us. They have done the end of Best of Both Worlds Part 1, ending entire season on an uber cliffhanger. In a series that is famously saying we are telling self-contained <laughs> stories here, a cliffhanger feels that much more of a uh, shift. But we did kind of end with a cliffhanger at the end of the previous season. It was just more of a personal one where the stakes were Una's arrest. And here the stakes feel a bit bigger, which, yes. which I think lends to the feeling that it, this is a change for the show. End of last season felt more like a postscript, like the adventure had finished. Yeah. We're going back to normal. Mm -hmm. Everything is fine. Wait, okay, this will springboard us next season. But definitely with this episode, we felt we were abandoned halfway through the story it's literally halfway through and yeah. they've gone no more for you you have to wait an extended amount of time that we don't know yet because of strikes no the cliffhanger is that much more potent for the, re the reason that we don't know when they're going to be able to make another we have no idea 
I what I loved is if you go and compare the cliffhangers, both of them end with a extreme close up on Pike's face and his eyes shift from watching the scene to looking straight at us at the audience. Both seasons, the last few frames are just Pike's pupils turning towards us and then cut to black. And I am loving that, that once per season, things get bad enough that Pike breaks the fourth wall because that's the level of panic that he's <laughs> facing. <laughs> it's just a nice, like, th there's no reason for it other than it is satisfying to watch. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And, and that was my feeling of the whole episode. I loved every moment of mm. this. I love the feeling of, it is a true adventure in the sense that it does not feel overly plotted so often these season finales or these big episodes feel like they are working their way towards some predefined ending and the plot or the events or the choices the characters make sometimes are a little conspicuously in service of the end that they're planning to get to but this episode felt to me much more of a and then this happened and then this happened Definitely. and then this happened and we don't necessarily know where it's going and much like best of both worlds where famously michael pillar who wrote the first part said well i'm quitting after this good luck to the poor bastard who has to write the second <laughs> half of this and then got convinced to come back and had to write it himself so he became the poor bastard yes that's what this cliffhanger and finale feels like to me is they don't necessarily know the whole picture of where they're going with mm. this they've left themselves a few threads there's some nitrogen grenades we have yet to see used there's scotty's contraption for hiding in plain sight there is something about the gorn we don't understand there are those things that we expect are gifts they have left for themselves to be resolved but I can't predict, nor do I think it would be especially fun to try to predict where they're going with this because I'm enjoying the journey so much. Yes, definitely. The tension and the action certainly rolled along. And like you said, there was like events happened to get to a point as opposed to plotted for exposition or getting to a... Um... Yeah, it's just a little messy the way like on the planet, they were like, we're going to take down the tower and on the ship. They were trying to figure out how to take down the tower. And in the end, one of those plans came together and the other one didn't. Those ragged edges, those bits of messy plotting make it feel that much more realistic and satisfying. That messy, frantic nature comes very much of a case of this invasion has just happened. Let's sort this out. We don't have time to stop and think or anything and just do it. But yes, you did mention the latest touch with history. We heard a voice at the end of last season, but it was a different actor. Yeah. And now we in have- a, In an alternate future. Yes. And now we have the first appearance of this Scotty, this young Scotty played by Martin Quinn, an actual Scottish actor. So there you go. Oh my God. It made me so happy. I couldn't understand how happy it made me. How good like, was he? When he stepped out of the shadows, as soon as he said two words in that Scottish accent, I was like, it's Scotty. And I'm so happy <laughs> Scotty's here. He was good, wasn't he? He was very good. He was great. Yeah. Oh. My my particular favorite moment, he was great the whole episode, like with the device he created showing his intelligence and his smarts and the, the trauma that he's had of the ship that he's lost, the people he's lost, and how easy he's like blended in with his fellow Federation people. My favorite moment is right at the end, he's beamed up to the Enterprise and the first person he sees is Pelia and they both go, <laughs> he goes, oh, it's you. And he goes, oh, hello. There's a thing that some actors can do really well, which is that they stay the same character, but they show a different side of themselves when they're with someone 
who knows them in a different way. And watching Scotty turn to Pelia and become this shy, <laughs> like underperforming student. And like he's got his pile of machinery like packed up to it. <laughs> so just his eyes are poking over the top of it. And he just withers in her view. And it, it he doesn't it doesn't change who he is. It was there all along, but it's very satisfying the subtle acting coming out of this guy. That is a double team that I'm really interested to see more of. I mean it's clear and it's an issue that Star Trek's had all along occasionally they do it where you'd see the team like voyager did it a little bit where taurus had her team of engineers and there was little moments mm. but for the most part if they need to talk engineering balana was the only one there same with the original series and especially the movies scotty was pretty much the only one we see if we do see anybody else and she's like his nephew or something who gets killed in star trek 2 but yeah i'm living for this i'm living for this building up an engineering crew and like we were Thinking about possibly Pelia would only be here for one season. Like they might do the whole spinal mm. tap thing, or they might do the Harry Potter thing of a different engineering chief each year. But I'm living for hopefully we see a bit more of this double team of Pelia passing on her knowledge in the field yeah. with uh, a young Scotty. I get a feeling that Pelia won't be around much longer in, in season three, that yeah. her function ultimately was to be the mentor that brings Scotty on board yeah. and ultimately like vouches for his ability and then heads off. It seems Scotty does have a bit of work ahead of him to redeem himself in her eyes, but she does call him one of his best students who just wasn't getting great grades. But sadly, he doesn't know that ship like the back of his hand. Donk! Not yet. Not yet. Thought I'd do another yeah, Final Frontier reference. <laughs> Sorry about that. One disappointment was that Patel was a little bit sidelined. She became huh. more of the goal that it was more Pike's story. And it could have been yeah. very interesting to have a parallel story of focusing on Patel's survival down there. Yeah, in her we story. didn't get to see her in action much or like leading her own crew. Yeah. She shows up and I like her attitude. She like she is not backing down in front of Pike. She's as much of a captain on this mission as Pike is. And she goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with him about what their plan should be. She's like sad to see him because she liked the idea that he was away and safe. And all of that stuff is enjoyable to watch. But I do agree with you that I've been craving getting to see her act as captain. And just those few moments on the planet before the Gorn attack, it was like, oh yeah, I want to see more of this. And it seems like we won't. The surprising thing was that that she was actually brought on board the ship and put in a stasis so there's opportunities for mm -hmm. her to have a dramatic oh, we'll see more of her but yeah. uh, her, her ship's in a million pieces as is her crew so i don't think we'll be seeing much of her captaining Captain Patel yeah. in action no and yeah. you're right it would have been great to have seen that a bit more like her only yeah. real interaction is with chapel and we go we know chapel and then we have like her dim crewmate who looks up at a very clear <laughs> I'm like, answer your captain, damn it. <laughs> and he goes, is that one of ours? Have you only just joined? Yeah. But Chapel did incredibly well. I love the fact that she wakes up, finds herself in this situation, and she is immediately gone to work looking for a way to be saved, to be spotted, to survive. None of this, none of this panicking or anything, just straight to work, seeing if the light works. Did you get the sense she's the only survivor? Because it seems like... Pretty good if you're Chapel, but if you're any one of the other kind of crew members in that bubble of oxygen that they found themselves in, like no one seems to be working particularly hard to save you. God, they just yet yeah, they just went for Chapel, and that's it. We'll fly through the debris cloud past you and uh, and try and save <laughs> the people on the planet. 
but yes, this is our first sight in this new series of a fully grown Gorn, but still obscured by deep space outfits. So we haven't gone the full Gorn. It's dark. Appearance. It's wearing a mask. Wearing a mask. But, it's yeah. covered up, but we see its full tail and we see its... I thought it was really impressive. Very I impressive. The way it was like hanging from the ceiling inside the ship and like attempting to access a system that was saying that the command code was invalid. I found that particularly creepy that this creature that so far we have only seen like mindlessly tearing flesh apart is now like trying to hack into a computer. That That is like, whoa, creepy stuff. That even more than any of the physicality, the... Just the, in the silence of that ship, hearing the computer say, command code invalid, over and over again. That's the thing to remember, like the episode from season one, where you we don't actually see them, it's just the ship. And so it's that whole sort of run silent, run deep, you know, a yeah. submarine battle. So it, it, it's great to, those little sprinkles. And I think I read somewhere, Akiva Goldman said, yeah, we're leaning heavily into the monster factor. And that, like you said, that's going, well, the more they lean into it, the more I assume they're hoping it's rewarding when we find out they're not monsters at all. A couple of other moments that stood out to me. There's when the second and third Gorin ship warp in and Una on the bridge says, we can't make this red alert any redder, Mr. Spock. It occurred to me that you actually can. We know from one episode of the original series that there's such a thing as a double red alert. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it hasn't been introduced yet. Maybe it's because maybe of not. maybe yes. it's because of this incident they bring it in. It was used once in the original series episode Conscience of the King when a phaser on overload is planted in the captain's quarters and Captain Kirk calls a double red alert. So maybe it's only reserved <laughs> for captain's quarters emergencies. Fantastic. I particularly liked a bit of the we talked about last season's episode with the Gorn was very reminiscent of Alien. There was a very yeah. much an Alien 3 moment here with the baby gone, getting right up in the face of Marie yeah. and uh, moving away, much like in Alien 3, because they could sense that she has the babies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we already got you. Yeah. Yeah. That's the type of voice I could hear them doing. Oh, we already got you. <laughs> Move it on. Speaking of the budget constraints and the backlot use, I thought this episode was interesting to me in that a lot of the visuals were like dazzlingly impressive stuff, but there were moments that didn't quite work to me. And just, it was more uneven than I'm used to seeing. Some of the things like the zero-G fight in the empty bridge that we're going to talk about in a little more detail in a moment, that worked really well yes. to me. Like every frame of that looked believable. And... Uh, in some ways, better than any zero-G scene we've seen in Star Trek before. Whereas some of the other stuff, like once that fight is resolved and then the saucer is like making its way into the atmosphere, Spock and Chapel kind of levitate out of there and spin around and hold hands. And I'm just like, where? Well, how are they maneuvering? This is, <laughs> very, this is a very accurate space ballet you're performing here. And moments ago, you were having to hold your toe against the railing of the bridge in order to keep yourself from flying off into space. So just, it's just, just, just go with this it, contrast of in control and out of control. Control. It just felt to me like they they were running up against limitations of what they could achieve with the visuals at some moments here. I see it more as they had those moments of let's try and be as accurate as possible. And yeah. sometimes they just went, let's be a bit artistic here. This looks beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. To hell with the science for just five seconds. Let's have, as you said, it that space ballet. What a beautiful way to put yeah. it, Kevin. 
<laughs> you hoisted yourself by your own petard. I love the moment where Scotty says, you both better grab onto something, and then the saucer rips through the tower. I whooped out loud when it happened. I was like, woohoo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was that like sudden rain of fire from the atmosphere splitting that thing in half. It was very satisfying. Kudos to the artists on that one. Oh, great solving of a problem with Pelia being used of their guy. We can't do this because this will show that we are here, but if we make it look yeah. like it's debris falling to smash. So that was clever working around the situation where they are clearly in Gorn space and they can't yeah. make the first move because that would start. Those rockets that moved that uh, saucer, I think, were another case of them just like running out of money because we never actually saw those rockets fire. Like Spock puts the last one strangely inside yeah, the, bridge. the bridge. And then uh, he presses a button on his wrist and then it cuts to the bridge and they say, the saucer's moving. So we never actually get to see those <laughs> rockets fire. And it would have been strange to try to see those rockets fire inside that space. So yeah, those choices of what is shown and what is not shown I think they made good choices because ultimately it amounted to a really satisfying episode. But when you look at it closely, those sacrifices do show up. Definitely. Yeah, great fun. Any more points that you need to bring up or mention? No, let's talk zero G because, yeah, that's what stood out to me is this zero G fight. And we've seen a smattering of zero G scenes over the years in Star Trek. I wanted to revisit some of those with you. Where did you want to start, Rob? Well, when it came to me for this zero G stuff, it is definitely something that more alludes itself more to the big screen. Yeah, there's a certain amount of budget you need in order to hang your uh, actors up in the air, if nothing else, right? Yeah, considering the budget of Strange New Worlds, one episode is probably the same amount as what the entire season of the original series would have cost. So I was quite impressed they went to zero-G land in a season finale of television, but I'm going to go to the movies. And probably Ooh. up until this episode as the defining greatest zero-G scene in all of Star Trek history, of course, in First Contact. The deflector dish scene. Yes, the big deflector dish scene, which I've just watched a little doco on and the time and the effort and Frakes shooting his first film and all, just to get the complicated nature of the zero-G effects, the wire work, the costuming, the stunt choreography. It's a masterclass in filmmaking and how it's shot and how it all comes together. I agree with you that it is a seminal scene. I don't think in hindsight it is super successful. Oh, no. As a first-time viewer of the movie, it certainly works. The tension is there. The context of the scene, like the stakes are high. And so as... An uninitiated viewer of the movie, I do think it works. But every time since then that I've watched that scene, it seems less and less successful and more and more janky and, <laughs> and subject to the limitations of the time. That moment where Picard is backed up against the wall by the Borg and so he turns off his boots and kicks off and spins through the air, I'm sure it worked great on the page, but on the screen... The angle is suspiciously horizontal. You can basically imagine exactly where the wires are that are holding him up. And it's just, it, it all has a feel not of zero gravity, but of actors hanging in the air. Look, it is a case of, since the release of Alfonso Cuaron's incredible film, Gravity, we as audience members have become more attuned to what we believe zero G should look like. So yeah. going back on films before then, your interpretation and your vision of it changes and you can see 
the cracks a lot clearer. It is very entertaining, but I think as a zero G, I, I don't. Uh, it visually is not a super polished, and it feels like perhaps the, the least successful visual effects in that very good movie in my mind. What? And I'll contrast you with another movie zero G scene, which is the scenes on Gorkon's ship, the Kronos One, at the start of Star Trek VI: The Undiscovered Country. Yes, which is an earlier movie. And it's all shot in the dark, so there is plenty of darkness for um, unsuccessful effects to hide in. And certainly, you definitely you see the blue screen, like when a when the Klingon cup kind of lifts off of the table and floats away. A modern audience, a modern eye, looks at that and goes, "Oh yeah, that's blue. Like that is a blue screen effect." <laughs> but nevertheless, it feels more successful to me. That moment where the artificial gravity switches off and all the Klingons like. Their shoulders lift up and they make a face that's like, oh, my my lunch just turned upside yeah. down in my stomach. You feel it. It is much more visceral to me than this this scene on the deflector dish in First Contact. The docker that I saw about that, the shot where the Mast Federation men are beamed on and they shoot the Klingons and they yeah. fly down the corridor. They were pulled up. And the, uh -huh. the, the angle of it was shot so that it was all on pulley system to give that effect. So it wasn't, of course, sideways. They were doing it vertically. Yes. And still the shots of the little bubbles of blood are done uh, are quite effective despite being in that. Yeah, the pink Klingon blood. That one movie where we thought maybe the Klingon's blood is pink and then <laughs> we changed our mind. But yeah. It, yeah, it's very effective, even though it is... It is CG of the time, those blobs floating through the air. You go, well, a computer made that. I don't believe that's quite there. But it does, it is polished for the time and it fits in and you believe it. I really love when the assassins get on the transporter and the pink blob kind of bumps up against yes. the foot and then transports away with them. And, and, yeah. and it's really great visual storytelling because your eye is drawn straight to it and and it does not seem particularly important at the time, but it does become important to the story that the blood came over on the boots. Uh, Definitely. So, yeah, just lots of great stuff in that scene. Uh, there's a Klingon that gets his arm shot off yes. and it floats away and he screams and very effective. I find that hard to watch. And, yeah, when Gorkon gets shot in the chest and he flies backwards through the air in slow motion which is something I want to talk about, <laughs> slow motion. But yeah, he spins and his like the his wound is spewing that pink blood and it's like shooting out and then is he's spinning and his leg is hitting the blobs of it. And it's the physics of it are really well realized that it all seems very believable. This is something that there was even a bit of in Strange New Worlds this week is the slow motion acting. The yeah. characters in Zero G... They've. It, I don't know if they're being directed to do it or it, it, if it's a natural instinct of actors told they're in zero gravity, but they all start moving very slowly and turn very slowly. And it, there are moments where I go, I understand why you're moving slow. You're not touching anything, so you, you don't have control of your motions here. But then there are other times where I'm like, you could have just put the thing down or you could have just pointed at the thing but instead you slowly pointed at the thing and what are your thoughts on slow motion acting in zero g rob yeah i mean it does come across very clear that it is a choice as an actor or it's how you've been directed and trying to yeah. find it's 
it takes skill as an actor. You need to be trained in physical movement. It takes some performers years to do. They study physicality or clown work at Lecoq or wherever in France or other physical, like, you know, you can study five, six, seven years in a physical performance to get that precision in what type of character or environment you are in. So just getting run of the mill jobbing actors to have that level of knowledge of physical awareness is a tall order. And so that means there's a lot that needs to be covered around that to show, to hide those shortcomings. So if you've got a lot of effects around or floating set and stuff like that, you can hide behind it. But if that is not there, it does come across a bit clumsy in, in the moments of first contact when it's just open space. And it's the actors slowly moving and you're going, right, that's a, that's an actor moving slowly, as opposed to believing the environment around. There were moments in Strange New Worlds where I felt that blending quite well, because there was a lot of debris around and a lot of, yeah, yeah. And it could be tied into the action as well of fighting the Gorn and moving around and the precision of the gun floating, that kind of works. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Chapel kind of reaching for the gun, but like holding her toe hooked against yes. the railing because that's her lifeline and tapping the gun and it's spinning in the air freely. Like all of that stuff felt really like, okay, now I believe it. Yes. Uh, this feels, and she is not slowly tapping it. She's actually like flailing for yeah. it. And it's really satisfying to, to feel the real zero G rather than the floaty. Trust me, this is zero G kind <laughs> of put on thing that we sometimes get. So they're getting better. I, this, that's why I said this is, to me this week is the best realized zero G scene we've seen in Star Trek. Oh, I agree. Totally. I do have one more example of zero G that I can take us to. Go for it. Uh, this is from Enterprise. And sp speaking of zero G is an expensive thing to do. So they only bring it out on special occasions. This is the series premiere of Enterprise, Broken Bow Part One, where we are just getting to know the Enterprise NX-01 and its crew. And there is a scene set in The Sweet Spot, which we are told is a spot of zero gravity that most Starfleet ships of the time have. And uh, Travis Merriweather says it is usually halfway between the grav generator and the bow plate, whatever the bow plate is, <laughs> something at the front of the ship. But it's this room and they can come up through a hole at the bottom of the room and the gravity there is downwards. But you look up and there's a Travis Merriweather sitting on the ceiling. Yes. And that's because halfway in between, it's zero gravity. And so, yeah, they have this scene. It's Trip Tucker who's coming to find him in this scene. And uh, Trip Tucker kind of, pushes off at Travis's urging and starts to travel normally, then loses his balance and flips through the air and goes, whoa. <laughs> and it's, there are a lot of camera cuts to hide the wires or to hide the cut from hanging one way to hanging the other way, but it is overall pretty successful to me. And they bring it back in towards the end of season two. And famously, Anthony Montgomery, who plays Travis, was saying like, I want to see the sweet spot again. Apparently, I hang out there a lot. I want to go back. So they brought that back in the episode entitled Horizon, season two, episode 20. And this is where Meriwether has found out that his father has died. So he's gone to be alone and he's sitting on the ceiling and Captain Archer comes to find him and give him a pet talk. But uh, this scene 
This episode has a lot more. It has a couple of sequences in the sweet spot where like Travis is like hanging downwards as he moves towards a comm panel to receive a call. And then as he's on the call, the rest of his body's kind of floating downwards and then he comes up under it. And it's really um, impressive, especially for the time and the budget constraints that show was under. I really applaud the sweet spot, even though it makes no sense to me that these <laughs> starships have a random spot where the gravity is not only missing, but upside down on the ceiling at one point in the ship. Uh, that aside, the science aside, the actual execution of it is really good in Enterprise. And it's good that because Travis does become like more of a glorified extra by the end of it. So to have yeah. an episode focused on him and returning to something that's such a fascinating creation is, yeah, it didn't happen that often. And clearly the more the series went along, they neglected Travis's development as a character a lot. So it's good to yeah. have, they certainly found the sweet spot in more ways than one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank it's you unique much. that scene or that space is used not as an excuse for an action sequence as well. Like those are character beats that happen in that zero gravity there. Yes. The zero gravity is interesting enough in its own right. We don't need people like trying to kill each other in the space to, <laughs> to make it watchable. So yeah, some low stress zero G. If that's what you're looking for, check out Enterprise. It's definitely mostly used for that high stress tension situation that not only do you need to solve this problem, but you got to go out in zero G and you got to go through all this debris and there's a life form there and all this type of stuff. So to have a moment of just sitting in the, for us, fascinating, but for them, everyday event of space travel and what that yeah. can connect it to is uh, something that we should see a little bit more of. So that's all the zero G I could think of, Rob. We are in a Star Trek pause now. There are no new episodes of Star Trek for a little while. And I started watching discovery to get back on track because i know it's coming and i only got two episodes early next in. year now i understand oh god oh good because hey, just two yeah. episodes in and it still shits me <laughs> there's some good stuff but it's it's not the majority i uh, yeah i've got to work particularly hard to get through that but yes we have to wait until uh, lower decks to return season four comes on september 7th i'm reading so that's not too not too far, far away, away. Not we'll too be far back away. with our animated friends i am both looking forward to it and sad that we won't have a lot of live action star treks strange new worlds is just so good i don't know how i'm gonna enjoy star trek that isn't that good that's the thing we've been spoiled for choice for so yeah. time with discovery picard strange new worlds lower decks prodigy now prodigy's gone please Put season two up it they've still been talking about it like they are still spruiking that season as coming they just have not announced where when or how so i hope it does drop as a surprise for us over the christmas holidays that'd be a great thing to to spend the family time doing is watching the further adventures of prodigy it would be a christmas miracle that's for damn sure
I've heard a lot of people who do not follow Star Trek as closely as we do, for whom the musical was a surprise. They had no idea it was coming, and they enjoyed it a lot. So I think maybe we went in with expectations too high by just how much hype that got. I am seeing us as very much the exception to the rule. It has been universally praised, and we're the two curmudgeons on the side. We're like Statler and Waldorf. They're going... Boo! Get off the stage, Fuzzy. We aren't followers, Rob. We blaze our own trail. We do. We walk our own path. And if that includes watching Star Trek V every week and saying it in confidence to your podcasting friend and hoping it wouldn't be revealed online. No. What? I've said too much. (laughs) Until uh, Lower Decks Season 4, Rob. Bye for now. Let's end on this cliffhanger. Wonder what Lower Decks will be like.